I desperately tried to see if I could finish the rest of this chapter, and I decided last night I can't do it. So we have at least two more sermons. <laughs> There's too much in here that is so hard to gloss over. I know what's going to happen is you're going to walk up to me afterwards and say, well, what does this mean? So I'd rather, I'd rather preach it than just go over it. So a couple more weeks in John. So this morning I want to begin by asking you a simple question. What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in the 21st century? Right? If we were to throw out a survey, we would get all kinds of answers. Um, all of us coming from different backgrounds. But this has been a popular topic for the last, I guess, 30 years. With all kinds of books, programs, and movements attached to it. Discipleship of Jesus. What does that look like? Some of the things that I've come across, discipleship has been described as a one-on-one mentoring in, I don't know why it has to be a coffee shop, but in a coffee shop, uh, where you're being mentored by someone spiritually older than you to help you mature as a believer, to grow. And eventually your responsibility then to is pass that on and do the same thing, right? You start mentoring someone. Others would describe discipleship as um, personal holiness, Growing in obedience and sanctification. So as a disciple, you're supposed to be becoming more like Jesus over time. Uh, others would be uh, the Great Commission, right? Go into all the world and make disciples. So he's telling his disciples to go into the world and make disciples. Seems logical. Uh, some of you may have heard, and I've referenced this before, the Radical Movement. Um, this book that came out about, I guess, 10 years ago when I was first in college ministry. It's a call to a radical dedication of life towards world missions. So either you need to sell everything that you have and use that to go to world missions or downgrade your life to, the, to live as minimal as possible so that you can use that money and all of that money f- to support someone who is going into world missions if you can't go yourself. So entertainment, vacations, resting, um, all becomes really a, a waste of time because, and kind of the logic goes, it's not exactly said like this, but the logic goes, um, how could you be doing all of this if people are dying and going to hell? It's pretty extreme, which fits the book Radical. Uh, then there's also, <laughs> and then there's also, discipleship is really described as the disciplined life. So if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you must be disciplined. And that would sound things like in your Bible reading, prayer, church attendance, tithing. Um, regi- it's a regimented life. So to be a disciple of Jesus means to regiment your life. Now these are just a few examples of what you may have heard or grown up with, or some of these are probably even new to some of you. And we can all think of Bible verses that would back most of these ideas, if not all of them, right? There's nothing really inherently wrong with anything that I have described so far. But what is interesting about almost all of these answers is their glaring commonality between each one of them, focused on the individual disciple. Normally when we think of discipleship, we think of the individual, disassociated from the group. So yes, there's always... I, I want to be careful here. I think everybody who promotes these different forms of discipleship, they all have good intentions. There's, I mean, you can't criticize someone who I think legitimately is trying to glorify God and grow in their um, knowledge of Christ and in their obedience to Christ. 
I have no criticism of that as all, at, at all. But what it breaks down is that the primary goal is the focus of the individual life. That's the only thing that I'm pointing out, saying mm, this, this seems to be more about how to help me become better. So how do I help myself become a better follower of Jesus Christ? <clears throat> what ends up happening in these types of Christian cultures is that it creates a hierarchy. Some of you have probably even felt this. We consider ourselves to be on a higher level or other people on higher levels because of the time invested, uh, the knowledge that's been attained, or really the bad habits that have been overcome. It's easy to compare our lives to others because of where we have come from, what we have accomplished, or in some cases, simply the failures that we have avoided. It's easy to, to compare ourselves in that way. Now, we as frail humans love to point out the failures of others. I've recently been on Twitter a little bit more. I don't know why. I think I just want to punish myself. <clears throat> and it seems like that's all Twitter is about, right? Just pointing out the, the stupidity of others. Now, I follow some people that are funny, and they, I like to follow them because they don't take themselves serious. They just make fun of other people. That's funny. But, <laughs> but we... we, uh, we it makes us feel better when we see someone else fail, and when we look at our failures, it's not as bad. It justifies our failure in some ways. It makes us feel more acceptable before God. Now, at least I'm not as bad as, right? Well, as we continue in John 13 this morning, Jesus presents a mindset that disassembles the idea of the discipleship of his own day. You see, the human heart today is no different than what Christ was dealing with 2,000 years ago. It's the same. Same fallen humanity. Self-centered, self-improvement, and pride were the driving force behind the 12 that followed Jesus. It's easy to see this. It's kind of John's and the gospel writer's point. Now, as we continue to work our way through the upper room discourse here in John 13 through 17, I want to remind us of the conversation that took place between the disciples right before the meal got started, right? So just as a a quick overview for everyone that, I know some people have been traveling, uh, for 12 chapters, Jesus has been performing his public ministry. That is now over. So he takes his disciples, he goes into the upper room, and it's at this moment, everything shifts from public to crucifixion. But before this happens, he has some things, some very important information he wants to hand to his disciples to get them ready for the next stage of their life, which is the book of Acts. And so right before this happens, one of the uh, synoptic gospels, the gospel writers, Matthew, records this conversation that's happening between the two groups of who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom. So again, if we don't fully understand the Old Testament... There's been this promise that's been coming since the time of David that the son of David is going to sit on the throne and the Jewish nation is going to be restored and it's going to be epic, like forever domination. Well, can you imagine if all of a sudden the United States was overtaken by a communist country and we had no rights, no freedom, we had to do whatever they told us to do. We went from living in freedom to absolute slavery and we were promised that one day, uh, you know, there was this somehow the leadership of the United States were got out and they were hidden in their real, they're rebuilding an army and they're going to come back and set us free. It's like, that sounds awesome, right? Come free us. Well, Jesus shows up and says, this is me. 
I'm the deliverer. I'm the one to come set you free. And they're like, finally. So the disciples are like, okay, well, he's going to need a commander, and he's going to need this guy, and he's going to need this guy. Who do you think he's going to pick? A.K.A., who's going to be the greatest? This is where they're at. They're thinking freedom is coming. Of course, they've missed it. Jesus has said how many times, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. You're not understanding what I'm speaking of. I have to remake this world because it's broken with people like you. So, more than likely, this conversation is what caused Jesus to perform the washing of the disciples' feet, which we covered last week. Now, there are two parts to this act by Jesus. The first we observed last week, where Jesus is kneeling at the feet of Peter, and uh, none of the disciples were going to wash each other's feet, because that is the lowest of all jobs within their culture. Of course, Peter knows this. This is horrible for Jesus to be doing this, and he objects. Of course, we know our God is sovereign. We know that Jesus knew that Peter would object, and then he uses this as an opportunity to tell Peter, you don't understand. Unless you accept what I must become for you, this is the illustration, you can have no part in me, is what he tells Peter. Of course, Peter says, then wash all of me, right? I I always want to be a part of you. It was the perfect picture of what was about to take place on the cross. What Peter and the disciples felt at that moment of humiliation, that their master had become lower than them. And it, and it made them uncomfortable. That was the feeling that they were about to experience as Jesus becoming sin before them on the cross. But then there's a second part, and we are going to look at the second part of the foot washing of the disciples today. So begin reading with me in John 13, verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put, out, put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. So I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now what Jesus presented to the disciples was nothing but opposite of what they have been arguing for, right? Position, power, prestige. And then Jesus tells them, he not only, instead of telling them, he shows them, listen, this is what following me looks like. Verse, 13, verse 14, if then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He doesn't mean this literally, because he goes on to explain this. He means it figuratively, the position that they are supposed to take. So at this point, culturally we knew that none of them were going to get up from the table and wash the other person's feet. Right? You just don't do that. You and I wouldn't walk into a restaurant, sit down and order, walk into a bathroom and go, oh, this bathroom's dirty. I think I'll clean it. We don't do that. Why? Because that's not our position. Our position is a customer. That's the position of the employee. That's how they felt. Well, I'm not doing that. And Jesus said, oh, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. To serve you in a way that you wouldn't even serve each other, that's the position that I'm calling you to. 
Now you understand what Jesus is saying. Now you understand what it means to be my disciple. Sounds very different from the list provided before. So within the modern church, it's very difficult today to get down to this level because we do not see ourselves in need of each other in any way. It's hard to see ourselves in need in this way. Church is where I come to be encouraged by good music and a motivational sermon. So far, you've had good music, motivational sermon. I apologize. Sure, I'll volunteer in the nursery or help with a ministry, get involved in people's lives. That's messy. So I'm going to serve from a distance. And this is what makes small churches scary. People may just end up knowing who you are. Because there's no hiding here. I always love watching new people walk in. They're like, oh, this is like getting in a car with a stranger. (laughs) These people may end up seeing the dirty parts of me if I stay here long enough. The parts we keep hidden from the public because no one can look closely if I keep them away. I think foot washing is the perfect illustration for us today when it comes to caring for the needs of others and what Jesus is trying to press in upon us. Culturally speaking, we don't take the time or energy to care for our church family. When we ask, how are you doing today? And we receive a big sigh and then, well... In the back of our minds, we're saying, oh no, you're just supposed to say good, and then we're supposed to talk about the weather and how humid it is outside. I don't really want to know what's going on. Actually, caring for people means you have to be willing to get down in the mud, lose time, and lose dignity. Where am I getting that? Well, because Jesus literally demonstrated it. In most discipleship programs or ideas, philosophies I have seen, the foot-washing passages are hardly ever mentioned into the training program. I would rather say that most discipleship programs are more like soldier programming, how to be a better individual, how to be a better soldier. It's hard to focus on making yourself better when Jesus is calling you to humble yourself for the service of others. You do not become the focus, which is interesting in Jesus' economy. When you serve others, there's no telling how much time, energy, and complications are ahead. I'll be just completely frank with you. I was driving here this morning with having so many people on my mind that are, you know, a lot of people have lost their fathers recently in our church. And it just, it's just weighing on me. It's heavy, you know, to carry that burden, to think about that with people. Uh, I want to skip forward real quick. Uh, Turn over to... John chapter 13, verse 34. We're going to cover this in the next couple of weeks, but I, I just want to, I want to jump to it now. And I want you to hear what Jesus says to his disciples, but right before he journeys to the cross. He says in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In my humble opinion, one of the most powerful 
verses in Scripture. Now, the first part of verse 34 is, is not complicated. <laughs> we all agree that we should love each other. No one would be walking out here saying, I don't have to love other believers. Of course, it makes sense. But there's a very important clarification Jesus adds to these instructions. He says, just as I have loved you. Right? You also are to love one another. Now we need to stop and think about this for a minute. How has Jesus demonstrated his love to the disciples at this point? He's going from a general love. Like, for instance, if I said, do you love the United States? You're like, yeah, of course I do. But do you love the United States the same way that you love your own children? No. No, you don't. Unless you're hiding it from me. When Jesus makes this comparison, it There's a side of it where, whoa. Now, unless you don't understand the love of Christ, then you're not going to feel the weight. But if you understand the love of Christ, there's a weight that falls upon you. Well, let's just walk through real quick what kind of love Jesus has demonstrated so far up to this point in his ministry to the disciples so that they can understand this comparison that Jesus is making. First of all, it's very obvious Jesus' love for them is unconditional. He has made this abundantly clear. What condition do you and I have to meet in order for Jesus to put his love upon us? Can you think of a condition? No. There is no condition. This is John, the beginning of John chapter 13. Well, all of John at this point. Paul concludes, while we were yet sinners, what? Christ demonstrated his love for die, by dying for us. The love by which Christ has cast upon you is not according to how you were born, what nationality, what gender, or performance, or your morality. It's unconditional. Secondly, it's pretty obvious Jesus has been very patient to the disciples. Uh, I, I, you ever wonder why there's so much details that's given to us about what little things are said and little things are done? I think it's just to demonstrate just how um, obnoxious we as humans are and how patient Jesus Christ is towards us. I mean, how many times up to this point has disciples doubted Jesus, questioned him? How many times did he have to perform miracles to prove his love and loyalty to them? His love is very patient towards us. And lastly, in my conclusion, is that his love is very faithful. It's very faithful. Jesus has told them of the prodigal son. The father in that story loved the son before he left and loved the son when he returned. Loved him before he left. The lost sheep, the good shepherd. I mean, there's so many demonstrations of the faithfulness of Christ's love for his disciples. So he says to them, just as I have loved you unconditionally, patiently, and faithfully, you also are to love one another. You know, it's hard to love someone you don't know that way. It's hard to love someone you are not willing to serve. Then Jesus tells them, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Unfortunately, one of the things that happens to me often is that I get asked, so what do you do for a living? 
I try and get out and meet people through all different kinds of means. Recently, I had the opportunity to play golf with a gentleman I didn't know. Of course, what happens on hole two? What do you do for a living? Well, this particular man, um, we'll call him Andy, because that was what his name was. Um, (laughs) Andy said, oh, and then like no response. I was like, great, this is going to be a long 16 holes. Uh, So like by hole four, he's like, so... What kind of Christian are you? <laughs> you know, he grew up Catholic, but he told me not really. It's just what he was born into. And he had a lot of interesting questions for me. But the conversation ended up around just the hypocrisy and just the judgmentalism that he sees within Christianity. And I was like, man, I couldn't agree with you more. It just breaks my heart. So Christians have a horrible reputation. I, I know. I'm so ashamed. I just wish people wouldn't act that way. And I said, there's a lot of confusion on what Jesus really taught and how people act. And I said, but... To be honest with you, though, we're all, like, all humanity is that way, right? He's like, yeah. I said, you don't really have to be a Christian to be a jerk. He's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but according to Christ, the, the love that we're supposed to have for people is, is supposed to have them step back and go, you must be a follower of Jesus. Man, I thought about that a long time this week. What would that look like? What would it look like for someone to watch us and then go, my, my only conclusion is you have to be a follower of Jesus. When the focus of the Christian life is self-improvement, right, me, focus on me, the greatest obstacle to this is other people. Do you ever think about that? You cause me complications. I've got enough problems, and then I add you into my life, now I've doubled my problems. So most people come to church, and they sit next to somebody trying to fix their own problems, their own obstacles in their own life, and they're not even going to look to the left and to the right because I can't deal with my own problems. Why do I want to take on yours? So people equals time wasted and inconvenience. That's what it ends up becoming. Hey, turn with me real quickly to Ephesians chapter 4. I've mentioned this before, but I want to make the connection here. I think it's helpful that Paul makes this connection. You'll notice that in Scripture, every time that we are instructed to do something within the church, the motivation is always the love of Christ and the gospel, which are pretty much synonymous. So Paul, he gets done talking about the absolute wonder and glory of Christ. First three chapters. And then he's going to make the application. This is what you are to do with this amazing gift you've received. So he tells him in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So we've already talked about this. John 6, John 10, Jesus says that the Father has called us to him, that there's this glorious gift we received of salvation. So he says, look, there's a way in which you should respond to this call. There's a way in which you should act. Now we, typically, if you've grown up in church at all, we think of this as personal holiness, right? Walk worthy. That means be good. Be morally right. Do better. But that's not the application John, or Paul makes. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. His application of receiving the gift of grace is to love patiently those around you specifically those who are in the spirit, the church. 
Fascinating. Sounds very similar to what Jesus is saying in John chapter 13, right? As he's speaking to the disciples. So when it comes to the salvation of our eternal souls, the priceless gift we received that cost Christ his life, Paul says, this is how you should respond. Walk in a manner worthy, and that manner is to love the church. Paul points us to the very thing Jesus pointed us to, to love and care for each other. At this point, I think it's very, very important to point out that when we lack motivation to follow the command of Christ, which we all do, including myself, we must never look to our acceptance as our motivation. What I mean by that is that there's a danger of what's called pietism. If you haven't heard me mention this before, pietism is attempting to obey God to earn acceptance or approval. So there's a criteria. If I do this, then God will accept me. And not necessarily for salvation, but just as being holy and right or for receiving blessings. That's what's called pietism. It's very dangerous theology, and it's something that we constantly try and push back here at this church. But don't confuse that with piety. Piety is good. We want you to have piety. Piety is obeying from the position of loved. I am loved. I am secure. There's, what are we just saying, and can it be? No condemnation now I dread. Why? Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All I have is Christ. So many great songs we sing today. From that position, we then obey. From out of, the, out of the overflow of our heart, we then obey. Not to gain, but because we have. A phrase that we like to use often was what we called obeying from status forward. My status is secure, it cannot change. Now, if we are unwilling to love our brothers and sisters, John, later on, deals with this. Of course, so does James. Have you ever read the book of James? Does it ever feel confusing to you? You're like, man, James seems like it's work hard and you're saved. No, that's not what James is saying. James is calling out people who are unwilling to be kind and loving. They're unwilling to love and not judge. In 1 John 3.14, if you want to write it down, John says this, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love brothers, the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So what is amazing about the motivation that Jesus, Paul, and John used to demonstrate is the gospel. It's always the gospel that properly motivates us to love. I want to demonstrate to you this too just in one more passage. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Because it's very easy for me to come in and pick up a stick and just whip you with this. You better love me. You better love each other. And then it's just guilt. And you walk out of here going, well, I already was beat up. Now I'm more beat up. Can't wait for next Sunday so I can get beat up more. <laughs> no, this is why the gospel is so important. So probably one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible is in John, or Luke 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat, this is Jesus, with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner prostitute, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And we've already um, heard one story that was similar to this with Mary. This is a different story. 
But it too is a very expensive ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, is this, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, Answering, said to him, Simon, I have nothing to say to you. And he answered, saying, Teach, I have something to say to you, sorry. <laughs> Didn't make sense in my own head, but I said it. And he answered, saying, Teacher, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he counseled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, She has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Powerful. Powerful. Simon, self-righteous, does not think of himself as perfect, clearly, no one is, but does not think of himself as, in comparison to the woman. Beautiful, beautiful story. The gospel is the constant reminder of what we have received. We have never deserved to be saved. It's hard for us to feel that. Nothing within us moved the Father to redeem us. It was by His mercy and grace that we received His love. So it's that moment when you're sitting at the feet of Jesus... And you're receiving all of this mercy and grace. And you, receive, and you realize how much you have received. I think is Jesus' point. When you see grace unfiltered. When you see it full. And you remove all pietism. And you remove all morality. And it's just you being saved by God's grace alone. With nothing of you. It's at that moment you will find yourself doing the same thing this woman would do. One other story for you. You've got the man in the temple who is beating his chest saying, who will save someone like me? And then you have the man next to him praying to God saying, I am so thankful I'm not like this guy. And Jesus says, who's the one who walked away justified? The sinner begging for mercy. In return, Jesus says, love each other with this kind of love that you have received. She loved much because she'd been forgiven much. Serve each other in the way in which you have been served. Your life has been saved forever. He says, use that as your motivation to care for each other. So the greatest motivation we have as disciples is Jesus Christ's love towards us. This is 
why we had 1 Corinthians read earlier today by David. Let me just read you the last part. It says, Shall now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest motivation in the church is the love by which we have received and the love by which we are to give. You know, the number one reason most people are too afraid of showing this kind of love is exposure. I can say that from experience, not from a sense of judgmentalism. To love someone like this means they will end up knowing more about you. We are terrified of people truly knowing who we truly are. What really goes on inside of us The doubt, fear, lust, anger, greed, anxiety, depression, and laziness. The closer I come in contact with people, the more opportunities they will have to see who I really am. Now, church, if we're all honest with each other, we already know this is true. And I already know you have hidden sins, struggles, doubts, and fears. Some of you are thinking, who told you? (laughs) You did. You told me. By simply being human. This is why I don't respect anybody I meet. Not when it comes to morality. I don't look at anybody's life or their accomplishment or the lack of sin that they have not fallen into and think, oh, what a great man or great woman. Because we are all fallen in Adam. We all have sins that we hide, that we keep within the darkness of the closet. I don't believe for a minute that you would present to me reality. And nor would I. It's too scary. And I'm not a pessimist. Some of you are thinking, oh, you're just a pessimist. No, I'm not. I'm actually an optimist. But when I look into the word of God, it tells me the reality of the human heart. If we all collectively together as church are willing to admit that we equally need grace, not the Pharisee, but we're all on the hands and knees with the prostitute, begging at the feet of Jesus, weeping over what he could provide. If we all find ourselves there, because again, You aren't in need of Jesus because you did something wrong. You are in need of Jesus because you were born a sinner in need of him. If we all find ourselves there, then there will be this moment of a sigh of relief. We can all rest together in Christ's love. There's There's no reason to compare. We can all look without judgment and serve each other because we know we are no better than the person to whom we are serving. When you live in a Christian culture that is all about performance, morality, becoming better, pietism, your moral level determines your your acceptability. A critical spirit will always be present and it will be terrifying. You know why, you, you know one of the commands, which we're going to get to here soon, you know one of the commands in the, in the, to the Christian churches? Confess your sins to one another. If I said pause on my sermon right now and I said turn to the person in front of you or behind you and confess your sin that you're struggling with this week, you would get up and walk out. You would. No way. Or we'd all pick what we call the acceptable sins. 
I'm struggling with pride. Struggling with envy. My neighbor's yard looks so good. Acceptable sins. But the real sins we're struggling with, we're too afraid. I'm included. But why would Paul say, confess your sins to one another? Well, if you are all equal sinners in need of grace, then there's nothing to hide. There's nothing to hide. We've been all set free from the bondage of performance. Now, church, this is why... (laughs) This is why we preach verse by verse every single week. I did not think this week, what does my church need to hear? Oh, I know what they need to hear, how dumb they are. Because they haven't confessed their sins to each other this week. No, we preach verse by verse because God's the one who dictates what we will have read to us. And if we work verse by verse through his book, we are going to be exposed to these types of truths. So I simply preach the next verse of John that he gives to us. And what is it that he is giving us again and again and again? Reasons not to look to ourselves but to Christ. That's the constant message. It's important for you to understand why we as an elder structure our church in the way that we do. We want to preach the word of God to you. But then we want you to be able to take that word and apply it to each other's lives. When Paul says, consider how to build one another up into love, well, that sounds familiar, and to good works, that sounds like Jesus. This love that you have received, love one another, and serve one another the way in which I have served you, right? You'll notice that Jesus does not equate it to the acceptability of him. It's just part of what we are. So the purpose of these gatherings are to build each other up. So our home fellowship groups, our men's and women's Bible studies, the different activities that we have, we have complicated, busy lives. We travel. We have children, family, so many things that pull us apart. So we have to labor to make sure that we are known for our own safety and our own sacred, uh, for the sickness of our soul. All of these are designed so that we can bear with each other's burdens. Think about what's the logical conclusion if I serve you unashamedly, sacrificially, if I serve you and in turn you're trying to serve me, what ends up happening? I think life becomes a whole lot easier because you don't live in secrecy and you don't go through your struggles alone. You don't. Listen, I know what it's like to be alone. As a pastor, sometimes you feel very alone. You deal with everybody else's problems. But am I going to go to lunch with you and say, no, listen, i got to talk to you about my marriage? <laughs> you'll be like, whoa, man, you're the pastor. Thankfully, your elders don't let me do that. They make me uncomfortable sometimes <laughs> by how they care for me. And it's important that they do that. Uh, but church, this is some... Um, This is a hard sermon for me to preach. Because what I don't want you to hear is that I've got this down. I in no way have ever served you in the way that Christ has served me. Not even remotely. (laughs) Ever. But man, is it my motivation. 
the more I see Christ exposed to me, the more of his gospel that becomes real. Every week when we sit and receive the table, when the elders get up and they remind me of Jesus Christ, there's this natural desire within me to just explode that on onto you. I just want you to have what I have had. I mean, the, the worst illustration I can come with right now is, you ever just watch a movie and it's so moving, the first person that you see, you're like, you can't believe this movie I just saw. It had this impact on you. It's like you wanted to share this experience with somebody, right? Every time I come in contact with Christ and the message of the gospel, there's a side of me that just goes, man, I just, I, I just want you to have this experience that I have of being relieved of your sin and being fully loved and fully known and fully accepted and never having to perform to get it and then being set free to imperfectly, imperfectly love each other. I'm gonna give you this illustration and we'll close. Most of you may not understand golf. Uh, well, there's this thing called a scramble. And in golf, what that means is that you have four guys and they all hit a ball off the tee, and then you go and you take the best shot, right? And then you take, and then you hit it again. It's called a scramble. Well, typically when I play in scrambles, um, we hardly ever use my ball. <laughs> so I'm in the trees, or I'm in the water. But once in a while, we'll use my ball, and it's really cool. It's like, hey, we're going to use my ball. Like, my little dribble of the shot was the only one that stayed in bounds. That's awesome. You know, that's kind of how I feel. Like, I just, I'm having so much fun being a part of this team where we're just enjoying life and there's, there's, there's no perfection. But when I do love you and God ends up using it for his glory, it's not because I'm this amazing Christian. I just happen to be on the team. And through my frailty and through the power of the Spirit, he ends up using me. But what's so sad is that we don't understand the experience of being with each other to actually have the opportunity to serve each other in that way. You have to get over the fear of being known. I'm willing to do it. I'm willing for you to look into the dark side of my closet and go, ooh, yeah, I know. I know. I need grace. I need to confess my sin too. I need the table today. I need to remember my baptism. Be, remem- be reminded that it's the blood of Christ that has cleansed me. I need to be reminded of that again. And then we rest together. What, what an amazing truth. And this is why, men, let's get ready for the table. This is why we take the table every week. Because we come in contact with Christ Physically, once again, and I don't mean that the presence of Christ is here, but he gives us an actual physical um, thing to participate in. And as we participate in this physical symbol, I believe that Scripture does teach that he imparts to us grace. He gives us grace that strengthens our faith. I don't know about you, but I have never once walked away from the table at this church and it became boring. It became habitual. It became less than. If it's what Christ has done for us, it can never become less than. Father, we thank you. (laughs)
through the foolishness of preaching and all of the weird illustrations, you take the power of your word and you implant it into our heart. Lord, this is why we sing it. This is why we read it. This is why we try and explain it so that we walk away having our faith strengthened and according to what we've learned this morning that we are, faith is united in service together. In Jesus' name, amen.